my opinion. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and start. So thank all of you for oh, what, Jack? What's up? We're just going to ask if we're uh, moving into announcements. We, we will be. Yes. Um, uh, so to start, uh, I guess I'll just dive right into announcements. First off, thank all of you for coming to the continued reading of Anti-Oedipus uh, for the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. Um, the short bit of housekeeping we're going to do up front, I'm once again live streaming. If you're on YouTube, thank you for being on YouTube. Uh, please tweet this, send this out to people, and take a second to uh, give us a like and all that fun stuff. Uh, we have a handful of people that have been showing up, which is great. Of course, you're more than welcome to join on our Discord server. Uh, we have a bunch of readings going. We have some new readings this week I know Kent is going to be wanting to talk about. Um... Uh, and I know Jack has a couple things, so let's go ahead and uh, move into other server announcements. Jack, uh, why don't you start, and then we'll go to Kent for the big Jackie one. Sure thing, buddy. So Quarantine Literature just uh, closed their voting polls, and it looks like Prometheus Bound by Aeschylus will be the text we're reading for this Saturday at noon PDT. Um, and then finally... Simondon continues with their discussion, I believe still of technical objects, on this Sunday at 11 a.m. PDT. So we look forward to uh, having you at both discussions. All right, and Kent, I know we have uh, on the second this week, uh, we have Zizek uh, starting Sex in the Field Absolute, which I'll be excited to join. And I also want to bring up uh, Nietzsche's uh, Thus Both Thus Spoke Zarathustra reading group happens tomorrow, uh, 2.30 PDT. Uh, it's on the Continental Philosophy server. Uh, Sex in the Failed Absolute group is Wednesday at noon uh, on the Zizek down here below uh, where you're at for this talk. Uh, and then also there's the, uh, the Heidegger Basic Writings group uh, that's on Friday at 3 p.m., uh, we're reading on the origin of the work of art. I think with that, um, unless anyone has any last uh, things to jump into, we'll start on the Urstat, a uh, term completely devised inside of this book that has no references anywhere else except for things afterwards. So uh, I'll go ahead and uh, dive in. The city of Ur, the point of departure of Abraham or the New Alliance. The state was not formed in progressive stages. It appears fully armed, a master stroke executed all at once. The primordial Urstat, the eternal model of everything the state wants to be and desires. Asiatic production with a state that expresses or con constitutes its objective movement is not a distinct formation. It is the basic formation on the horizon throughout history. There comes back to us from all quarters the discovery of imperial machines that preceded the traditional historical forms. Machines characterized by state ownership of property, with communal possession bricked into it, and collective dependence. Every form that is more evolved is like a palimpsest. It covers a despotic inscription, a Mycenaean manuscript. Under every black and every Jew, there is an Egyptian, and a Mycenaean under the Greeks, an Etruscan under the Romans. And yet their origin sinks into oblivion, a latency that, hold, that lays hold of the state itself, and where the writing system sometimes disappears. It is beneath the blows of private property, then of commodity production, the state witnesses its decline. 
Land enters into the sphere of private property and into that of commodities. Classes appear, inasmuch as the dominant classes are no longer merged with the state apparatus, but are distinct determinations that make use of this transformed apparatus. At first situated adjacent to communal property, then entering into the latter's composition or conditioning it, then, in, uh, then becoming more and more a determining force. Private property brings about an internalization of the creditor-debtor relation in the relations of opposed classes. Because why not start with just an incredibly dense chapter over on this one? Uh, does anyone have any starting thoughts on this? We'll start that way. Well, um, I just you know want to mention that uh, they're right, uh, you know, about Ur being the first city, and uh, and what what's amazing about it is that it just appeared overnight. Um, the uh, people were in groups of about 120. And then all of a sudden, there were forty thousand people in a city, and um, and so I think that that's that that is kind of an amazing thing. And the 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 interesting thing about it is the more we find out about Ur, the uh, and the other uh, cities in that area, um, the 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 more we see that they had everything of civilization within their, uh, you know, it just overnight. All of civilization basically appeared. And to mention, uh, if you saw the image I used to uh, pro- as a proponent of this session, and I posted up, uh, I was pretty stunned when I started searching for Ur and, and st- you know diving back into it. I found a ton of images of American soldiers in Iraq. Uh, Ur is in Iraq, um, hmm. uh, with a ton of American Marines standing on the steps taking selfies, which I thought was pretty beautiful. As far as this chapter goes. <laughs> Um, but that's the the concept is they're talking about this, uh, and they mentioned it early on. This there was only ever one state is something they mentioned in a previous uh, uh, a couple times. But they really started making the point in the previous section, and that is ultimately what the Orstadt is uh, for uh, people who are very much not against, uh, not for anything that is idealistic or platonic. It seems that feels very odd that they've dove into this concept of this sort of everlasting state that is platonic, but uh, that is very much what this is, the Urstat. Well, um, so first, um, just to make a quick comparison with Umberto Eco and his essay, Ur Fascism, uh, just to point this out, like, sort of etymologically, but the use of Ur there refers to something that's not just, like, primal or sort of, like, um, sort of originating, but something that like is sort of persevering and um, uh, not quite everlasting, but enduring. So, like when they're talking about the Ur state of the city of Ur here, it's it's appropriate too etymologically because they're referring to something that continues to endure. Um, the reason I say it's, I agree with you that it's like it's the Ur state has the similarity to Platon to like a platonic idea, but it also doesn't because it's kind of interesting how they're setting this up in the sense that the earth state seems to kind of have this quality of, um, of being this, like this, this sort of form that all these things, um, all these different states, uh, reference and, and work with and try to reestablish. So it's like, it almost seems like it's off limits, but because they're qualifying as, at least uh, this is kind of how I'm reading it, 
because the Earth state seems to kind of go latent, it's got this interesting quality of not necessarily being fully transcendent, but rather like being hidden and then seeming to return. Yes, I, he's just organ. They're just organizing their notes. <laughs> yeah, there we go. We'll, we'll give we'll give Alyosha a chance to uh, uh, figure out his microphone. Feel free to jump in whenever. But uh, uh, the vassalizer, hell of a name, uh, asked a great question: What is the relationship between debts and classes and private property? Uh, so uh, obviously that is a huge, huge, huge question. Specifically in this paragraph, the way that uh, it seems that they're uh, uh, laying it out. Uh, not to give a preview of the rest of the section, but it's the idea that uh, upon the creation of the state itself, uh, the writing system essentially starts to disappear into that. And at that point, we we have the concept of uh, commodity production take over the idea of land. And private property becomes a thing inside of that. And with private property, blah, 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 with communal property, the classes appear the moment that these things start being created. The moment we have uh, private property becomes out of commodities, classes appear in as much as the dominant classes are no longer merged with the state apparatus, that the, the controlling power empowered classes are no longer part of the state apparatus directly. They begin to emerge outside of that. At first situated adjacent to communal property. Uh, the the public land the the uh, in feudal systems uh, the king over everyone there's tons of communal property uh, they are situated essentially next to that but over and more and more time the determining force happens that private property brings about an internalization of creditor debtor relations between these two opposed classes it's a kind of a preview of and an outline of really where the rest of this section's going at least that's how I read it. How about now? Can you hear me now? Much better. Or no? Much yes. better. Okay. Uh, I don't think what I was going to say was too enlightening. All I was going to say is I feel like this thing of whether it's platonic or not is connected to, they keep saying, this throughout the section, they keep saying there's only ever been one state. And they're, from what I can tell, it seems like they're trying to reverse this usual kind of formula of like, oh, there's primitive communism and then there's, you know, feudalism and this, and there's capitalism and socialism. And they're trying to say that that thing that Kent was saying of, you know, the, the state formation kind of comes all at once that what we see later coming into being. So like forms of the law and other classes, which seem to be in contradistinction to the state or fighting with the state or reigning the state in, it seems like what I can see from this is that they're arguing that those are actually byproducts of the state itself. And, you know, it's typical to kind of look at it in that linear progression fashion, but, uh, but just, yeah, so that they, they, at one point they talk about Marx's thing about uh, going from the abstract to the concrete rather than from the concrete to the abstract. And I don't think I'm using this word correctly, but I wonder if for Deleuze that he's seeing it as this, this as a potential, you know, that he talks about potential sometimes, or it's, it's a state which all other forms of the state are related to not as an ideal form, but as like, you know, that genealogical basis from which they all come. I don't know if that's just gobbledygook. But. No, no, I, I think, I mean, it's a thing, obviously, we're going to have to spend time in the review tomorrow because I, it's one of the things I find confusing about this uh, section because uh, uh, my first read of this and how I've read it in the past is that uh, the state uh, emerged uh, overnight. Uh, as Kent said, it actually is, 
they're describing a state that literally emerged overnight. Um, so they're not really being facetious or snarky. They're, it's This happened, a ton of people get together in order for a ton of people to exist together. The apparatus of the state, the machine, uh, needs to exist. Now, the moment that that state machine exists, which happens when you have a ton of people because it's a, how the apparatus functions, necessarily the machine starts producing and as the machine starts moving it starts breaking and it starts reforming and the necessity of the state uh, is that over time we move where land moves from communal to private where it moves from people uh, who once were literally uh, what we might see as an amalgam of the state uh, the the kings, uh, the despots, the the ruling classes, they become a little bit separated as necessity requires in these machines. Uh, and slowly what happens is classes get produced, debt becomes a thing, all of these things become created as a necessity in the machine that is the state. And the state being this, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I, I should not have read as far ahead as I did last night. But that feels like where I'm starting with this. And so, but how does one explain both this latency into which the despotic state enters and this power with which it reforms itself on modified foundations in order to spring back more mendacious, colder, and more hypocritical than ever? This oblivion and this return. On the one hand, the ancient city-state, the Germanic commune, and feudalism presuppose the great empires and cannot be understood in terms of the Urstat that serves as their horizon. On the other hand, the problem confronting these forms is to reconstitute the Urstat insofar as possible, given the requirements of their new distinct determinations. For what do private property, wealth, commodities, and classes signify? The breakdown of codes. The appearance, the surging forth of now decoded flows that pour over the socius, crossing it from one end to the other. The state can no longer be content to overcode territorial elements that are already coded. It must invent specific codes for flows that are increasingly deterritorialized, which means putting despotism in the service of the new class relations, integrating the relations of wealth and poverty, of commodity and labor, reconciling market money and market from revenues, and money from revenues, everywhere stamping the mark of the Urstat on the new state of things. And everywhere, the presence of the latent model that can no longer be equaled, but that one cannot help but imitate. The Egyptians' melancholy warning to the Greeks echoes through history. You Greeks will never be anything but children. That, that came from Platonic Dialogue. Thank you. Thank you, Kent. That was literally the question I was going to ask. Sure. So I, I think one thing that's interesting here is that um, they're setting up this relationship of the Aristotle to the states in terms of uh, a kind of oblivion and uh, returning presence, right? So it's like the Erstat seems to go into oblivion where it becomes latent, and yet at the same time it seems to return, and thereby it's sort of reconstituted, or at least it's reconstituted to fit the present and the conditions thereby. So it's it's not the, the Erstat that um, memory kind of would... Uh, reestablish, but it is the model for that reestablishing, right? So, one thing I think is kind of interesting here to explore is that um, the Erstat, or rather, I'm sorry, the state seems to have this relationship with um, with what's going on in the the society, such that things like wealth, private property, um, 
and these other aspects like classes are beginning to individuate from the state, but also seem to have like a role in sort of having a power over the state. It, it reminds me of power paradox in that power seems to be spreading out and transferred. And in that way, it's, it's not lost or gained, but it's moving. Um, Adi has a question. Uh, I'm still around the beginning where they mentioned the schizo constantly scrambling the codes. He's uh, a, a few para- He's a few chapters behind us. Uh, what are the codes? I don't really understand this. And I think actually that's worth us spending a moment here because as we talk about how the Orstat works and uh, what, as they quote in here, what do private property, wealth, commodity, and classes signify? They're the breakdown of codes. Uh, if anyone wants to dive into an explanation around how coding and decoding of flows works. Well, I think I think we can go back to the Sumerians themselves and see that um, what, what's interesting is that writing in cuneiform came out of uh, accounting. And the first forms of writing were these little tokens for the different kinds of um, products that they were keeping track of. And so they would create these little counters uh, and then they would put these uh, cuneiform characters on the little counters to differentiate the counters. And then eventually those cuneiform characters, you know, were then inscri- inscribed in tablets and became the, uh, uh, you know, the, the writing system itself. So uh, in, in that case, uh, the codes were the codes for the different classes of, um, of uh, you know, resources that they were keeping track of like the wheat and the you know the the cattle and all of the different agricultural products that they were keeping track of uh, to to take a second and talk about flows though because it's it's worth a little bit of time uh again to do that uh, i'm going to read from uh actually i need to figure out who wrote this uh Daniel Smith uh, wrote a wonderful piece called Flow, Code, and Stock, a note on Deleuze's political philosophy, uh, which I'm a big fan of this entire paper. It helped me uh, understand, uh, at least contextually, a lot of what Deleuze is talking about, so I'm just going to read through. Uh, How does one go about doing this retrospective reading of universal history? Deleuze's answer is, through the concept of flow, yet Marx himself did not have an explicit concept of flow. He defines neither labor nor capital in terms of flow. To understand Deleuze's concept of flow, we have to turn to the 20th century Buddhist economist Keynes. Deleuze says three things about Keynes' great book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, which was published in 1936. First, it presented the modern theory of flows. Uh, To quote, stocks and flows are the two fundamental concepts of modern political economy as formulated by Keynes, Deleuze comments. The first great theory of flows can be found in Keynes, he says once more. Uh, There's a few more quotes around it. Keynes wrote the general theory in the midst of the Great Depression, for which he was attempting to provide both a diagnostic and a cure. Theory of flows and the injection of desire into economics was part of Keynes' new diagnostic state of a diagnosis of the state of capitalism, uh, which is to Deleuze a essential supplement to Marx's analysis. Uh, and I can I will link to uh, this entire piece. Uh, it's worth spending a little bit of time reading through uh, the whole thing's great. Um, but the first is flow from an economic point of view is transmission or exchange of money, or generally that of economic value that moves from one pole to another. Uh, There's an incoming and an outgoing flow. 
Uh, term pole here simply refers to individuals, groups that function as interceptors of incoming or outgoing flows. Uh, second part is code. Uh, the correlative of the concept of flow is that of code, which is precisely a form of inscription or recording, which in the capitalist formation assumes the form of an accounting system, to Kent's point. Uh, a transaction entered into a bank account of an individual or firm, the recording or inscription of the transmission of a flow. Uh, a paycheck is an incoming flow. A check I write to a pay a bill is an outgoing flow. Flow and code are reciprocally determined. It is impossible to grasp a flow other than by and through the operation that codes it. Uh, and of course, three is stock. The third concept after flow and code is the concept of stock. Uh, we don't have to worry about that one now. It doesn't really come in yet, uh, but it's kind of the ability to own things, essentially. Uh, but we're not discussing that. I don't think they've mentioned Scott stock almost at all in this. But the idea is uh, flows are, uh, think of them like water, uh, and I love using this analogy. Uh, you have raging rapids of flows, and the flows come in a lot of different ways. Commonly, early on, we talked about libidinal flows. Uh, throughout the early parts of the book, you'll run into this. They talk about the flows of desire and desiring machines. We've now moved into talking about economic and political flows uh, through the state machine, the, the Urstadt. Uh, but if there is one point, I believe, in all of this book, it is that uh, we are talking about the same underlying energy, uh, the same flows. And so when we talk about coding, we're talking about basically taking the water flows, that there's this torrent of passion and, and desire that is flowing out of every human, and we create these little pockets for them uh, where that energy can be used or where it gets sectioned off or where we can place it. Uh, and so uh, flows is difficult to talk about in individual entities. And so what we do is we code them by making the flows individuated. Uh, it's a gallon of water versus a river is much easier to talk about. Codes operate the same way. It's, we have a ton of labor, but the, the eight hours someone worked on a video for me, that's a coded flow of that. So um, hopefully that helps a, a little bit of a breakdown there. And it's still a thing I'm trying to formulate exactly how to sort of simplify the entire concept myself, because it's, I find a very poetic and beautiful way of talking about just in general uh, economies and desire, which are really one and the same in this. Well, one thing that might be uh, good to mention here is that the lure was a very, uh, you know, because, because they, they've uh, gotten the writings of the people of Ur and those other cities in Sumer. Um, you know, we know a lot more about their civilization than we know about um, Egypt, because they, they, the Egyptians wrote on papyri. And basically, all we have left, really, of the Egyptian civilization is what they inscribed on their tombs. Whereas um, in uh, in the Middle East, uh, in 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 the in the the Fertile Crescent area, uh, they wrote on uh, clay tablets, and then uh, they would have libraries, and the libraries would burn down, and it would bake the tablets, and so then the archaeologists can either uh, get those tablets out of the ground. Uh, either still in their clay form or uh, sometimes baked. And, um, and so there's millions of these tablets all over the world in different museums. And, and there's every kind of document you can imagine uh, in these archives. 
and uh, and what I understand is only about ten percent of the archives have actually been, uh, you know, gone over by scholars and understood. But most of those documents are economic. Focus on one passage um, where they write: the state can no longer be content to overcode territorial elements that are already coded. It must invent specific codes for flows that are increasingly deterritorialized, which means putting despotism in the service of the new class relations, integrating the relations of wealth and poverty, of commodity and law, reconciling market money and money from revenues, everywhere stamping the mark of the Erstat on the new state of things. This is one reason I think this is you can take the Erstat kind of less platonically too, is that it it's like the horizon on which everything is kind of looking, especially at the state level. But what I like about this passage quite a bit is they seem to be pointing out that the state and the, you know, in a sense, right, the despotic and imperial machines, they don't just overcode over the aligned and affiliative. They also have to deal with the problem of the codes that are becoming, or rather the flows that are becoming increasingly deterritorialized. So at that level, despotism has to be kind of repurposed so as to set up these new class relations, right, which is taking us into the new alliance and um, extended affiliation, right? It's It's got to deal with um, the deterritorialized flows. But we're also seeing how things like wealth and poverty and commodity and labor are being um, integrated. And I really like their use of the word internalized here, especially in relation to the debtor and credit relationship, because I think that kind of gets at a heart of one of their points here is that like, and that's really it, right? Like you're supposed to take this creditor-debtor relationship to heart, right? If you read like the book of Proverbs, there's this idea of internalization. And uh, coming from a business background, this is something I see time and time again in business ethics literature, is that you're supposed to internalize a kind of ethics. But I think you can see with Deleuze and Guadari that ethics is could be bound up in this debtor-creditor relationship and thereby in relation to this kind of, um, this Erstat. And and this is where their comment where it says uh, there was only ever one state, which I think is a haunting, it's a very haunting way to sort of put it. Uh, that's ultimately their point, is that uh, the state as it's, as, it, as it's existed and as it's been created maybe has had changes. But the reality is, once you start the process of this way of coding flows, uh, specifically economic flows, you can't help but have this state continue on. Uh, 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 great line, uh, the desire of the most disadvantaged creature will invest with all its strength, irrespective of any economic understanding or lack of it, the capitalist social field as a whole. Flows, who doesn't desire flows, and relationship between flows and breaks in flows. Old Delusian line, such a good one. Yeah, and to hit one last point here, I really think um, in the, the last two parts of that passage, reconciling market money and money from revenues, everywhere stamping the mark of the earth stat on the new state of things. First, I would say, like, this is interesting to me, too, from a business perspective, because the market is now being needed to reconcile with revenue, right? So like what merchants take in needs to match what's in the market. This is a basic accounting point, but it it shows that there, this problem of accounting comes into play where all of a sudden you need things to balance financially. 
although that's not exactly how it works, is it? But I really like that final final phrase, everywhere stamping the mark of the earth stand, the new state of things, because this seems to me to be intimately bound up in what the what the despotic does. Is it, you know, they use this um, in relation to like desiring production, where desiring production is like marked upon things, or like there's a grafting. In the same way, I think it's a good point they're making here that the earth stat is effectively um, marked upon different things in the society. Mm. So, like, it's, it's, you know, embossed upon them. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Any other, any other questions uh, before we continue moving on? Well, well, I'd just like to say that, um, you know, but what's the interesting thing here is that they're saying the Erstat appears as this emergent event all of a sudden. And, you know, like another example of something that appeared all of a sudden that was a unique event was life. So when they when they go back and they look at, uh, you know, the DNA and all the different species and so forth, what they what they discover is that life only arose once. It didn't arise over and over again. So like some things that are invented are invented multiple times by different people. But there are certain phenomena that appear just once and never, uh, you know, the, 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 the invention is never, never reoccurs. And so basically what they're saying here is the Erstat is like that. It, and if you, if you ever get a chance to go and see uh, a, uh, you know, presentation of the things from Ur, it's it's very impressive of how sophisticated they were the the grave goods they found you know musical instruments games just everything uh, cosmetics everything of cultured life just appeared together all of a sudden and there's no real explanation for it. well and actually that is a great way for us to segue into the next paragraph uh, because it starts with the line this special situation of the state as a category, oblivion and return, has to be explained. To begin with, it should be said that the primordial, despotic state is not a historical break like any other. Of all the institutions, it is perhaps the only one to appear fully armed in the brain of those who institute it. The artists with the look of bronze. That is why Marxism didn't quite know what to make of it. It has no place in the famous five stages, primitive, communism, ancient city-states, feudalism, capitalism, and socialism. It is not one formation among others, nor is it the transition from one formation to another. It appears to be set back at a remove from where, from what it transects and from what it resects, as though it were giving evidence of another dimension, a cerebral ideality that it is added to, superimposed on the material evolution of societies, a regulating idea or principle of reflection, terror, that organizes the parts and the flows into a whole. What is transected, superseded, or overcoded by the despotic state is what comes before, the territorial machine, which it reduces to the state of bricks, of working parts henceforth subjected to the cerebral idea. In this sense, the despotic state is indeed the origin, but the origin as an abstraction that must include its differences with respect to the concrete beginning. We know that myth always expresses a passage and a divergent, divergence, 
The primitive territorial myth of the beginning expressed the divergence of a characteristically intense energy, what Marcel Grion called the metaphysical part of mythology, the vibratory spiral. In relation to the social system and extension that it conditioned, passing back and forth between alliance and filiation, but the imperial myth of the origin expresses something else. The divergence of this beginning from the origin itself, the divergence of the extension from the idea, of the genesis from the order and the power, the new alliance, and also what repasses from filiation to alliance, what is taken up again by filiation. Jean-Pierre Fanon shows in this way that the imperial myths are not able to conceive a law of organization that is imminent in the universe. They need to posit and internalize this difference between the origin and the beginnings, between the sovereign power and the genesis of the world. The myth constitutes itself within this distance. It makes it into the very object of its narrative, retracing the avatars of sovereignty down through the succession of generations to the moment when a supremacy, this time definitive, puts an end to the dramatic elaboration of the Dunestea. So that, in the end, one no longer really knows what comes first and whether the territorial machine does not, in fact, presuppose a despotic machine from which it extracts the bricks, or that it segments in its turn. A two. Uh, to read the footnote there, um, it's worth very quickly, this is a lot. Um, everyone, I'm, I have questions, but first I want to read the footnote to the line. I'm going to read the line and then the footnote. That is why Marxism didn't quite know what to make of it. It has no place in the famous five stages. Primitive communism, ancient city-states, feudalism, capitalism, and socialism. Regarding whether it is possible to bring Asiatic production into agreement with the five stages and regarding the reasons behind Engels' renunciation of this category and origins of the family and the Russian and Chinese Marxist resistance to this category, Sigdelier, sur le mode de production asiatique. One may recall the insults addressed to Wittfogel for having raised this simple question. Wasn't the category of the Oriental despotic state challenged for reasons having to do with its special paradigmatic status as a horizon for modern socialist states? Uh, and I don't know. Uh, I don't understand that question. So this is going to be a fun one. Let's start uh, early on. Uh, first, uh, does anyone have comments before I start asking questions? Because I genuinely, there's a lot in here that I like, but there's a lot in here I question. Yes, I have one in regards to that footnote. Um, as I understand that footnote, what they're basically saying is like, didn't Russia and China, which are um, right, two countries that went, um, went so-called socialist, or at least had like a surge of uh, Marxism, didn't they disagree with the... Um, at least the question seems to be, didn't they disagree with Asiatic production as a horizon for their socialist states, which is effectively to say, aren't they trying to take the um, take the light off of the role of the state that they seem to have lifted out of history? Right. The, the point being that isn't isn't these um, rather aren't these societies just another stamping of the earth stat and thereby by extension, isn't this just another Asiatic production um, within the five stages? I think the point is that the, you know, the communist theory uh, took the history of Europe as their paradigm, and it turned out that the history of Europe was kind of unique 
for several reasons. And so it didn't fit with the history of other places like China. And so I have I'd to I have to also there. I have to also be really and I, I'm probably very much oversensitive to it, but a lot of what they've talked about throughout this entire book, whenever they mention Asiatic or Oriental, Orientalism as a concept is something that I'm very much feeling throughout a lot of this. Uh, they started a lot of that with the noble savage uh, concept that they start with, and I'm not super fan of that, but this feels a little bit like that. Oh, yeah, no, that what they did is they had something special. They had something different. And it was, I mean, I, I, I'm not a, a world history major in, in Chinese you know, history, but it wasn't like some crazy other thing. It was a generalized feudal system with its own standards. Like, I don't... I've never, I've never read anything in history and went, well, that's a really unique way that they lived. Like, it's like, no, it's, <laughs> I'm, unless well, I'm wrong. Well, well, see, the thing is that um, in, after, the, after the decline of the Roman Empire, there was a general die-off from plagues within Europe. And basically, everyone in the cities died. And so only the people who, the only people who lived were the people who went out into the country. And so those people who lived and went out in the country, they established these feudal domains. And it took a long time for those feudal domains to integrate into state. And so that whole uh, history that had to do with the demographics, you know, was not mirrored in the same way in China. And so, and other places in the world had, you know, different historical uh, paths that they went down. And so if you take the, if you take the European, uh, you know, the only other place where there was feudalism was Japan. So if you take, if, if you take that paradigm from Europe and you start applying it to everything, then, you know, there's problems. So and and to mention, uh, I think Alyosha is also right that the timing of the book coming out, we're talking about work that they had done in the '60s, and that was, uh, I mean, we can call it the awkward years of anthropology, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, it, it's not as bad as the early '40s, where some of the shit I read is amazing, but like they're, it's obvious they're trying to. Like, I like this. They're rereading in this pseudo anti racist way that is like the Louis C.K. of theory. Not far off from a good way to put it, actually, because they're trying to make a larger point. They don't have all the knowledge that we have at this point. I, 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 think, I think that works. It's just, it's an awkward uh, way. And then when they talk about Asiatic production as a concept, again, I don't. Does anyone here have that background? Because I don't understand what they truly mean by, like, Asiatic production. Again, they were it was feudal. Anyone have any? Anyone? Well, no. I think the point is it was not feudal. Feudalism is a particular historical phenomena that happened in Europe and Japan. You know the the the. Organization of the Chinese state, very different feudalism. If they had a feudal period at all, it was during the Warring States period. I think that's, and that's what I'm trying to figure out is what they're talking about because they tend to be blend, blending a lot of this together. 
Well, I think they're ta- what they're talking about is that the, the, the sequence that they're talking about is the general theory of uh, historical Marxism uh, in dialectical materialism. And, and o- a famous exception to that is the Oriental uh, uh, production system. I just pasted into the chat, sorry for the spam, a quick summary from this Oxford reference site. And I think if anybody has questions about uh, what it is and what it means, and maybe some of the debates, that could be a a useful outlet. I mean, to me, I'm just trying to, in order to understand this text, we have to meet it halfway and we have to sort of take these concepts a bit at face value and just try to understand them. But I think we can also, as a memento mori, just remind ourselves just like this book is intervening in debates of its time about Lacan and other things, Mm -hmm. you know, some of these things, I think, I think I kind of get where they're going with this. They're trying to push this idea of the Asiatic production. No, no, it's not, it's not that crude idea that you guys know. It's this plane of imminence that all states approach, you know, back and forwards in time. But it almost feels like most of what this book is, you know, who is it that we keep saying says that this book is half of it is kind of a joke. Like they're doing this thing where they take all the accepted ideas of like different kinds of Marxism and Freudianism and psychoanalysis, and they're just inverting them and playing with them. And I, I don't know if that means it's completely right or completely wrong, but it just, I think it's also okay to say, this is kind of a, just a really messy concept. And that, I, don't, I don't think that makes me an expert on it, but for sure, Asiatic mode of production has like, I mean, it's just, it's so enmeshed in these debates of this time of anthropology and ethnography and it does feel like it's been very much superseded by later scholarship, but I think we can still kind of take, just like we read, you know, Birth of Tragedy in the literature group, and it doesn't matter what Nietzsche got wrong in that, you can, there's a lot you can take from that, and I think we'll kind of have to approach it in the same way. This, uh, this may help. This is a quote from Marx. Amidst Oriental despotism and the propertylessness which seems legally to exist there. This clan or communal property exists, in fact, as the foundation, created mostly by a combination combination of manufacturers and agriculture within the small commune. A part of their surplus labor, labor belongs to the higher community, which exists ultimately as a person. And this surplus labor takes the form of tribute, etc., as well as of common labor for the exaltation of the unity partly of the real despot, partly of the imagined clan being the god. So like you can kind of see what they're getting at with what they're talking about Asiatic production in the way that um, at least the society that Marx is referencing here is constructed with the despotism and with the classes such that like surplus labor is, um, or rather surplus labor is uh, moving up to the higher community, right? So like this is a basic point about class and Marxist economics, but that this is also like this upper community, this higher class, this despotism that you might call the state, um, or at least the state in connection to the classes that have power over the apparatus. It's just as a kind of person that takes tribute. So, right, like Deleuze and Guadalupe would say it's taking, you know, it's, it's reclaiming a kind of debt, right? But I think you can kind of start to glean what, what they mean by Asiatic production here. So they're they're essentially talking about, and it seems like well, Marx is directly talking about. Uh, I mean, obviously the things that happened uh, 
it was kind of his his life and what he was able to observe or study contemporaneously would be the ends of the dynastic rules of China, I think was around that time. Uh, so. Yeah, and the struggles for power that arise in the dynasties, right? Like Guadri and Deleuze make a point earlier on that this is why there was never a revolutionary investment, right? Because this is kind of like if you know Cat's Cradle, it's the same point at the end of the story, right? The the people who take power maintain uh, the system and thereby reconstitute the state, or more effectively, the Erstat is once again stamped. This will be something for sure to talk about. Uh, at least I'm, I'm going to read up a little bit more on the end stages of the Qing Dynasty, uh, so that way I can uh, understand that a lot better. Anyone have any other questions? Because I'm I'm about to dump into mine for sure. Adi Begum Musky. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna actually go down and uh, talk about a very specific section that I really want to understand because I think it's the point they're trying to make. I believe. Um, between the sovereign power and the genesis of the world, the myth constitutes itself within this distance. It makes it into the very object its narrative, retracing the avatars of sovereignty down through the succession of generations to the moment when a supremacy, this time definitive, puts an end to the dramatic elaboration of the dynastia. Does anyone understand what the flip this is? So, revisit the topic sentence. The special situation of the state as a category, oblivion and return, has to be explained. So, well, real quick, what is what is dynastia? Like, I can't find anything on that. Like, it's a word that's used, but it seems like literally, I can't find a. Uh, it's lordship in Greek. That doesn't make sense here. It's cool. I I don't know Grial well enough to comment on that part, but. Uh, the, the, what, what part of what this paragraph is trying to do is establish how the state works in this categorical way, such that there's oblivion and return intimately linked in, into the state, right? And so when they're laying out this myth, or rather, when they're laying out the role of myth here, it's in contrast to how myth is working in the primitive um, territorial machine, right? Where you've got like... Uh, so let me let me try this before I go there. They're working with what's arguably a metaphysical part of mythology, which is the way that this characteristically intense energy is being expressed um, in a kind of divergence, right? So uh, rather a passage and a divergence. So like the primitive territorial myth, if, I think what they're trying to say here is like there's a way that energy creates the primitive territorial representation, or rather the energy within that representation is thought to give birth to the alliant and affiliative and moving in between them, powering them. You could almost compare this with like desiring production, right? A kind of primitive energy or primal energy that's flowing and constitutive, except we're talking about a representation, right? So where they go further is they talk about how um, the imperial myth is going to have to deal with something else. The imperial myth has to deal with how the um, how the new alliance and the extended filiation are constituted, and in that constitution, the, di- the the divergence is particularly important here because the imperial machine has got to diverge from that of the um, 
of the primitive machine, but in doing so, it has to maintain its counterposition. So this is what they mean when they say like the genesis is um, is diverged from the, the uh, beginnings. That is to say, like the the empire, if you like, finds its own Big Bang and its own history, and that Big Bang separate from that of like what comes from the Earth and the primitive. So like you can almost see in like there's this grand event whereby the state is introduced and and the Earth stat is stamping. But in that, this myth serves to break from and um, to break from the previous myth of that of the primitive. Okay, um, we're obviously going to need a handful of people who are very familiar with Foucault because Foucault is really the one they're referring to here. Obviously, um, he used this in a series of uh, discussions he gave about, and I am going to butcher all of these terms or anglicize them to a point of pain. Um, uh, Foucault locates a fundamental circularity between parhesia and democracy. For there to be democracy, there must be parhesia. For there to be parhesia, there must be democracy. Uh, parhesia is the exercise of free speech operating in an antagonistic structure of competing individuals. Uh, this is uh, rooted in what uh, Foucault calls politics as experience. Uh, designated by the Greek term dunistia, which derives from strength, power, the exercise of power. Uh, rather than any organizational or institutional framework, which is politia. So the frameworks that we live with is the politics, whereas the raw power that is exper- expressed by the state is dunistia. So their reference here seems, if I'm going to interpret this terribly, is the myth constitutes itself within this distance, makes its own object narrative. Um, the state basically uh, creates itself uh, and at this point uh, does away with the classic concept of power and instead it becomes more frameworky. So that in the end, one no longer really knows which came first because we have still the state has that power and we don't really have that but it does not in the territorial machine does not in fact presuppose a despotic machine from which it extracts the bricks or the segments in its turn uh the shift from that sort of brutal power setup and i'm going to throw that out there for everyone to butcher and tell me why i'm wrong because i'm i've got to be i i think you're on the right track if the myth is in between the two representations if it's in between the two myths um or rather the two machines excuse me then as we look back um to that memory right to that myth that came before of course it's going to start to become unclear whether or not the primitive machine the primitive myth kind of prefigure this despotic movement in fact earlier in the book if i remember correctly they even talk about how like the aligned and affiliative structures uh, are kind of open to this despotic movement, which seems to be even like to their point, right? Is like looking back through from the despot um, after the despotic machine and the myth being situated in between those two machines, it becomes difficult to kind of extra- um, to extricate it. I'd like to comment on the oblivion part because the uh, you know the the thing about Sumeria is it really did fall into complete oblivion and it was only when they excavated the cuneiform tablet they could and then some of the other archaeological finds that you know did 
you know, it was lost to history that uh, that civilization and, you know, in the 18th century, they found it again. In the 19th century, they spent a lot of time in archaeology digging it. Yeah, I, I do think uh, Alyosha's right. A lot of this is going to be, if we had a really good understanding of the contemporary understanding they had of anthropology, it would help a great deal. But I think um, with that, unless anyone has any final questions about that paragraph, which I welcome, I uh, will move on to the next paragraph and we'll leave this behind for review tomorrow. We have time today. There's, a, there's only a handful of paragraphs left, so don't hesitate to throw out a question. We're here as you need. In a certain sense, it is necessary to say as much in regard to what comes after the primal state, in regard to what, was, what is resected by this state. It supersects what came before, but resects the formations that follow. There, too, it is like an abstraction that belongs to another dimension, always at a remove and struck by latency, but that springs back and returns stronger than before in the later forms that lend it a concrete existence, a protean state. Yet there has never been but one state. Once the variations, all the variants of the new alliance, falling nevertheless under the same category. For example, feudalism not only presupposes an abstract despotic state that it divides into segments according to the regime of its private property and the rise of its commodity production, but the latter induce in return the concrete existence of a feudal state in the proper sense of the term. Where the despot returns as the absolute monarch. Really? Let me reread that because I read that wrong. Sorry. But the latter induce in return the concrete existence of a feudal state in the proper sense of the term, where the despot returns as the absolute monarch. For it is a double error to think that the development of commodity production is enough to bring about feudalism's collapse. On the contrary, this development reinforces feudalism in many respects, offering the latter new conditions of existence and survival, and that feudalism of itself is in opposition to the state, which on the contrary, as the feudal state is capable of preventing commodities from introducing the decoding of flows that alone would be ruinous to the system under consideration. And in more recent examples, we have to go with Wittfogel, when he shows the degree to which modern capitalist and socialist states take on the characteristic features of the primordial despotic state. As for democracies, how could one fail to recognize in them the despot who has become colder and more hypocritical, more calculating, since he must himself count and code instead of overcoding the accounts? It is useless to compose this list of differences after the manner of conscientious historians village communes here, industrial societies there, and so on. The differences could be determining only if the despotic state were one concrete formation among others to be treated, treated comparatively. But the despotic state is the abstraction that is realized, in imperial formations to be sure, only as an abstraction, the overcoating imminent unity. It assumes its imminent concrete existence only in the subsequent forms that, it, that cause it to return under other guises and conditions. Being the common horizon for what comes before and what comes after, it conditions universal history only provided it is not on the outside, but always off to the side, the cold monster that represents the way in which history is the head in the brain, the Urstat. I think... 
this is more of the same of the previous previous paragraph them using contemporaneous things they're shitting on a few theories that we probably don't even understand because oh it's double air to think that this and that and it's stuff that i think was more contemporaneously interesting to them than i think it would be to us but more making the same point that no matter what form it takes and how it's set up we like to think the feudal state is not the state we have today but it is uh, the way that it functions and how it works the machine of it all is identical it's worth noting too though that they're where they're going into like feudalism and democracy here right they're talking about systems of power and economics right so like the alliance mm-hmm. but in doing so they're also yeah you're right they're definitely getting into how like the earth stand uh the earth state is stamped here but this is an interesting point because by making this criticism of democracy especially since we're looking at this without the um the machine of capitalism just yet it's an interesting point they're making in that um we tend in at least in the u.s to not really to not exactly get into this critique of democracy where there is like there is arguably a despot um, a despotic element but what they seem to be getting at here is like even with the the the, um the use of democracy with things like um, senates or representational governance, uh, where power is just out there and anybody can get it, if they follow the machinery, right? If they follow um, a certain tally of votes, if they are allotted that power. So too, does there seem to be this level of the airstat there, um, again, getting embossed, even though this doesn't exactly look like... um, like the airstat itself. This is still like... That, that embossing where there isn't like there isn't this stages of development or this like transfer and there just seems to be this continual stamping upon um, up, uh, through the despotic machine uh, to read the footnote uh, I was just reading over that as Jack was talking uh, Maurice Dobb has shown how the development of commerce of the market and of money had very diverse effects on feudalism at times reinforcing serfdom and the whole array of feudal structures, studies in the development of capitalism, reference note 70. Francois Hinker has elaborated the concept of state feudalism to show how the French absolute monarchy in particular maintained the productive forces and commodity production in the framework of feudalism that did not end until the 18th century. Uh, Again, I think they're talking through things that were contemporaneously being discussed, but I think since then... Uh, we have a better grasp of even at a at a generally academic level. But this is a point of con- uh, contention for like Marxism and like even like economic history and development, though, where like the presence of something like commodities and wealth under feudalist society, what they seem to be getting at here effectively is like. That didn't necessarily lead to the end of feudalism. Arguably, there are societies that actually strengthen feudalism, and in doing so, strengthen things like serfdom or like a kind of class, but also strengthen the role of the state without moving into the break into capitalism or rather the emergence of a capitalist machine. I think an important point here is how late capitalism lasted. You know, I, I can't remember the date, but it's like 1850, 1875, something like that. And so it's not something that, you know, there was the Renaissance in um, in Italy and then the Renaissance in 
in Europe, but 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 capitalism, I'm sorry, feudalism uh, lasted through all that right up until uh, you know around 1850. I understand. Uh, to go back to reading uh, just quickly out of uh, Flow Code and Stock. Uh, historically, for instance, one thinks of the fact that the Middle Ages, usury, the lending of money of interest, was considered to be a sin, once the figure of Jewish moneylenders as the Shylock. Since they were not subject to this Christian restriction, the Jews became lenders and bankers, a line of flight in an otherwise overcoated economy. Similarly, it was not until 15 of August 1971, a few months before Anti-Oedipus was published, that the U.S. dollar was removed from the gold standard and instead allowed to float freely on the exchange market, a further decoding of money that broke the centuries-old link between money and precious metal. The history of money is one of primary topics of Deleuze's retrospective reading of history. Primitive economies functioned in terms of a code of barter, in terms of direction and relationship exchange between objects. But the reintroduction of money as a general equivalent was enough to destroy these codes. This is what happened during colonialism with cargo, cults, etc. What money showed was that the objects being bartered in primitive economies were themselves simply qualified pieces of labor to which there corresponded a given quantum of value. They were simply very qualified flows, forms of stock. In other words, primitive codes were already operating in conjunction with these flows but they warded off these flows. Primitive societies kept merchants and blacksmiths in subordinate positions. They warded off exchange and commerce precisely because the abstract or fictional quantity of money was enough to break the primitive codes. Deleuze holds to the thesis that money was invented by the state as a means less of encouraging commerce than of controlling commerce through taxation, which is uh, talks about quite a bit. Um, again, it's worth reading this whole thing, but I, I thought I'd go into that because it's it, again. I think a lot of their entire setup is really talking about how this, the underlying coding of flows, how these things operate, is really what we should be looking at, rather than the state being uh, oh, they introduced commodification that that destroyed feudalism, and now we have the state apparatus. And it's like no, they kind of have always operated, and here's the function of how the state works. And if you look at it this way, this has always been the case. It's just changed forms. Uh, again, my interpretation. Uh, but they're about to actually just get into. Uh, Marx, uh, I'll go ahead and continue reading. Uh, Marx recognized that there was indeed a way in which history proceeded from the abstract to the concrete. The simple categories are the expression of relations within which the less developed concrete may have already realized itself before having posited the more many-sided connection or relation which is mentally expressed in the more concrete category. Well, the more developed concrete preserves the same category as the subordinate relation. <clears throat> End quote. The state was first this abstract unity that integrated sub-aggregates functioning separately. It is now subordinated to a field of forces whose flows it coordinates and whose autonomous relations of domination and subordination it expresses. It is no longer content to overcode maintained and imbricated territorialities. It must constitute invent codes for the decoded flows of money, commodities, and private properties. It no longer of itself forms a ruling class or classes. It is itself formed by these classes, which have become independent and delegated to serve their power and their contradictions, their struggles and their compromises with the dominated classes. It must fashion as best it can a whole to which it will render its law imminent. 
It is no longer the pure signifier that regulates its signifieds. It now appears behind them, depending on the things it signifies. It no longer produces an overcoding unity. It is itself produced inside the field of decoded flows. As a machine, it no longer determines a social system. It is itself determined by the social system into which it is incorporated in the exercise of its functions. In brief, it does not cease being artificial, but it becomes concrete. It tends to concretization while subordinating itself to dominant forces. The existence of an analogous evolution has been demonstrated for the technical machine. When it ceases to be an abstract unity or intellectual system reigning over separate subaggregates to become a relation that is subordinated to a field of forces operating as a concrete physical system. Just want to start off the discussion by saying I like how they're consistent with talking about how like the signifies or that mental aspect of the sign is really taking precedence here. So much so that even like even the signifier, right, we're, we're starting with like the the territorial presentation with the signifieds with that mental aspect or what they say right the cold monster that represents the way in which history is in the so-called head and the so-called brain the erstat and we're kind of following that back to look for the marks that will like subserve that um that representation or that mental aspect of signification I would also wonder, uh, the way that they talk about the state here early on, the state was first an abstract unity that integrates subaggregates functioning separately. Um, and the timing of this versus other uh, bits of their writing, I would wonder, uh, as they talk about the virtual becoming real uh, in a number of their books, ultimately they're talking about the state being a virtual apparatus that becomes a full apparatus over time, basically starting as the result of uh, the, the result of interactions at the material level and then ultimately becoming the product of the material level of the interactions itself, sort of pushing it into becoming more material itself. It's an interesting way that they talk about that switch happening. I wonder if they wrote about this later. They had to have. They had to have revisited this concept. Uh, one, one thing to, to think about here is that, um, you know, the, uh, in, in, in Sumer, you know, in Ur and Uruk and those places, they had a, they had, they were self-conscious about the fact that they had created this new thing, uh, which was their civilization. And, um, and they had a, uh, ontology for that where uh, they had these uh, things called may, M-E. And, um, and so the word may is kind of like their word for existence or being as a copula in, as a verb, but as a noun, it means these arts of civilization that were the foundation of the civilization. And there were 101 of them, and they had lists of these, and I think they've uh, found about 70 of them in different manuscripts, what they are. And so it's really interesting to go and read what they considered the arts of civilization. It's not what we would have, if we were to come up with a list of the arts of civilization, we would not come up with this list. So, um, so it's interesting to see how they viewed this emergent event 
of their own creation uh, by their society of this or state, which is then, according to you know Deleuze and Guattari, kind of like this virtual thing, which is latent, and then it keeps it once it's once it's been created, it kind of keeps manifesting over and over again in different situations uh, historically. And it adjusts how it needs to. It's reminding me a lot of. Uh, I wonder if there's a reason for this. Uh, reminding me a lot of how they were talking about uh, the Oedipus uh, complex in the previous uh, chapter. And they spent a great deal of time talking about how uh, it becomes basically uh, this triangle uh, that finds whatever it needs to and finds the form it needs to have in order to continue to exist. And the state very much is doing that here. They're talking about that. It appears them behind them, depending on the things it signifies. No longer produces an overcoating unity. It is itself produced. As a machine, it no longer determines the social system. It is determined by the social system into which it is incorporated in the exercise of its functions. The machine, basically, the state machine, the Orstat, uh, produces the things that produce it cyclically, which is fascinating. Yeah, I think this is where they're they're actually quite brilliant in talking about how the Erstat moves from oblivion to its return, and the return always seems to be more intense in the sense of like cruelty, of hypocrisy in that, or rather of terror. And I think that's a really interesting point because of that. The Erstat, I, I kind of compare with like Foucault's quadrille, where like it's almost like the Erstat is going into the hidden part of the quadrille, right, where you can't really see it or it's being latent, but then it's emerging, right? And at that level, it's sort of, a, I think the technical term is hyperstatizing, where the abstract uh, concretizes. Any last thoughts here before we move on? Does anyone want to comment on the last sentence? Is that, uh, I mean, is that anything like Simondon's uh, uh, book on technology? The footnote is to Simondon and, and that particular text. Oh, okay. Great. Okay, so this is a reference to Simondon. Yeah, he's cited here. Would anyone like to expand on that who has a better understanding of Simondon than me? I mean, I was calling him Simondon until about a year ago, so, I mean, I'm not a person to talk to about him. Yeah, we you know we have a whole reading group that uh, is uh, been reading this text. So, well, but perhaps there's no one here from. Yeah, they're not here right now. We'll 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 see what we can do about getting them. Uh, let's. Uh, I'm going to ping them in the chat real quick. Simon Dunn, group. We need you. Please join the review tomorrow. Um, uh, but it is uh, a great last sentence the existence of an analogous evolution has been demonstrated for the technical machine when it ceases to be an abstract unity or intellectual system reigning over separate sub-aggregates to become a relation that is subordinated to a field of forces operating as a concrete physical system wonderful I'm going to continue on but isn't this tendency? Oh, go ahead. Would you like a Would you like a break from reading? 
No, I'm okay. I mean, I, I, okay. if anyone's sick of my voice, I'm more than happy to hand it off, but I'm doing all right so far. Got my water. <laughs> Words for me, man. I had a little Always bit of too much coffee. Oh, you're sweet. I had a little bit too much coffee, so I'm fine today. Um, but isn't this tendency to concretization in the social or technical machine precisely the movement of desire? Again and again, we come upon the monstrous paradox. The state is desire that passes from the head of the despot to the hearts of his subjects, and from the intellectual law to the entire physical system that disengages or liberates itself from the law. A state desire, the most fantastic machine for repression, is still desire. The subject that desires and the object of the desire. Desire, such is the operation that consists in always stamping the mark of the primordial urstat on the new state of things, rendering it eminent to the new system insofar as possible, making it interior to the system. As for the rest, it will be a question of starting again from zero. The founding of a spiritual empire, there which forms exist under which the state can no longer function as such in the physical system. Well, that's a fucking mouthful. I'm going to really say that again. As for the rest, it will be a question of starting again from zero. The founding of a spiritual empire there where forms exist under which the state can no longer function as such in the physical system. When the Christians took possession of the empire, this complementary duality reappeared between those who wanted to do everything possible to reconstruct the Urstat from the elements they found in the eminence of the objective Roman world, and the purists who wanted a fresh start in the wilderness, a new beginning for a new alliance, a rediscovery of the Egyptian and Syriac inspiration that would provide the impetus for a transcendent Urstat. What strange machines those were that cropped up on columns and in tree trunks? In this sense, Christianity was able to develop a whole set of paranoiac and celibate machines, a whole string of paranoiacs and perverts, who also form part of our history's horizon and people, our calendar. These are the two aspects of a becoming of the state. It's internalized in a field of increasingly decoded social forces forming a physical system. It's spiritualization in a supra-terrestrial field that increasingly overcodes, forming a metaphysical system. The infinite debt must become internalized at the same time as it becomes spiritualized. The hour of bad conscience draws nigh. It will also be the hour of the greatest cynicism that repressed cruelty of the animal man made inward and scared back into himself, creature imprisoned in the state so as to be tamed. We have extra time today, by the way, so if anyone has genuine questions in general, now would be the time. Ask them in chat or feel free to unmute yourself because we have just finished section. So, so there's quotes from Nietzsche, hmm. um, and, and it brings up the, this thing of, uh, you know, the, the, the self-taming of man, which uh, is uh, a question that that uh you know that some anthropologists ask about whether whether uh human beings engaged in domestication of other human beings in history cuz some of the some of the characteristics of human beings today ha are similar to characteristics of domesticated animals Interesting. I read this. Um, I, I I probably read it differently when I was when I read it in Nietzsche, but I read this here very much talking about sort of the 1700s 
self-repression or social repression that we experience uh, internalized, where we've repressed ourselves, our desires, our flows uh, on behalf of the state, the creature imprisoned in the state so as to be tamed. That's us doing it to ourselves. The repressed cruelty of the animal man made inward and scared back into himself. Reminded of an old uh, story of a man who beats his dog every day and it's chained up. One day the dog gets, gets out and attacks a woman. He's like, that's why I chained it up and beat it. <laughs> uh, very much the sort of nature of self-repression. Maybe that's just me. Anyone have questions, thoughts? I think you've got an interesting point there too, though, because this um, this predator debt relationship is internalized in a spiritual sense, right? So, like, this is kind of like a probably a clear idea for most, but like I think of John Milton here, and one of his um, sonnets he talks about um, wanting to be like a slave to God, but more directly in terms of the losing watery. You could read Milton um, from losing watery's perspective is like internalizing the creditor-debtor relationship at the spiritual level in relation to the state. And, and their reference here to when uh, Christians took possession of the empire, the duality reappeared between those who wanted to do everything possible, reconstruct the Orstat, and those who wanted a fresh start. Uh, the line right before, I think, is the reference they're making. It's a question of starting from zero, the founding of a spiritual empire where forms exist under which the state can no longer function as such in a physical system. Uh, the, and the reference earlier to that concept of power, the concretized physicality and power that they had, where's the line, where's that word I was trying to... Dunistia. Um, the, the actual direct imperial power of the state uh, becomes secondary to the implied spiritual power of the state essentially. And when Christians took possession of the empire, that duality reappeared because people wanted to bring back, this is the Roman Empire, we also wanted a new way of going. And so, in this sense, Christianity was able to develop a whole set of paranoiac and celibate machines, a string of paranoiacs and perverts, uh, those are the people who work for the despot, or in this case, the state, who form part of our history's horizon and people our calendar, which I think is a people to our calendar. In this regard, Jacques Lacherre has called attention to the figures and moments of Christian asceticism, Egypt, Palestine, and Syria, starting with the third century. First come gentle paranoiacs who install themselves close to a village, then withdraw into the desert where they invent astonishing aesthetic machines, expressing their struggle against the old alliance and affiliations, uh, the St. Anthony stage, they call it. Next, communities of disciples are formed, monasteries where one of the main activities is to write the life of the founding saint, celibate machines with a military discipline where the monk reconstructs around him in the form of ascetic and collective constraints the aggressive universe of the old persecution, or as they call it, the St. Pacomius stage. Finally, the return to the city or village, armed groups of perverts who assign themselves the task of struggling against the dying paganism, the Shnodi stage, which I need to look up, I don't know that one. More generally concerning the monastery's relationship with the city, uh, see Lewis Mumford, who talks about the elaboration of a new form of urban structuralism in terms of mon monasteries. Uh, 
Well, that's, I mean, that's what they're talking about here is basically what the state does is it creates the thing uh, that now operates more in the machinic level uh, through, in this case, Christianity by creating uh, in its place the internal celibate machines and interacting with all of this uh, that sort of creates the pervert and celibate machines on the two sides. Uh, the the perverts who want to demand that we have that allegiance to the state, the old Roman way, and the ascetics, uh, the, the celibate machines, who are the ones who are closest to God, who we need to celebrate. And they, they brought them together in the Holy Roman Empire, which is a really good example of that. The, the three stages, which, I mean, they're being uh, shitty here. I mean, they're being ironic and jokey. But I like that way of putting it. But they do have a really good point that elucidates what they're talking about when they say, like, if you go back to the first sentence, right, it's not just Ur, it's that Abraham's point of departure is from Ur, right? Once again, we've got the despotic going into the desert. And I think you get that really clearly here with what they're talking about in terms of Christianity. This movement into the desert, whether it's the desert um, in lieu of the previous empire, right, in the reconstruction of the Urstat, um, or in moving into the aesthetic, where the reconstruction is once again going into the wilderness, and thereby, like, just like we see here, right, the, the task becomes writing the history of the founding saint. You know, once again, the, a kind of despotism emerging. I, I read a book recently <clears throat> that was about uh, Abraham and the the idea that, you know, since his father was an idol maker, um, uh, what his education would be, and he would have had a Sumerian education and, uh, you know, Mesopotam Mesopotamian education. And so, you know, usually, uh, you know, it, it, mostly in Christianity, Abraham's kind of a blank slate, and you don't know anything about him. But because we've unearthed schools in uh, in Mesopotamia from from that period, we know exactly what students uh, were studying because the 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 clay tablets that they were writing their lessons on were preserved. And so um, and so, it's really interesting to think of. Uh, how Abraham had this education, the Sumerian education, and how what is the relationship between that and his uh, being the founding father of uh, uh, three religions? If, if no one's opposed, I would propose we we focus in on those last three sentences, starting where so the passage being these are the two aspects of a becoming of the state: its internalization in a field of increasingly decoded social forces forming a physical system, its spiritualization in a, a supraterrestrial field that increasingly overcodes, forming a metaphysical system. The infinite death must become internalized at the same time as it becomes spiritualized. The hour of bad conscience draws, draws nigh. It will also be the hour of the greatest cynicism, quote, that repressed cruelty of the animal man made inward and scared back into himself, the creature imprisoned in the so-called state, so as to be tamed. So one thing that strikes me about this passage, which is why I think it's worth focusing on, is like they're making it really clear, right? They're talking about the becoming of a state, and thereby like part of this, this section seems to be about how, how in this movement between the primitive and the despotic, 
the state actually comes into being, or even um, to that point too, how different empires in this changing of the guard between imperi- um, imperial regimes comes with the continuance of this despotic machine, even though it's the Earth stat is being recapitulated. They really don't tell us, though, who they're talking about when they talk about internalization and spiritualization within Christianity when it took over the Roman Empire. No, they're not too specific there, but I think I think this passage does enough to, to elucidate the point that, like, as the state is coming into being, as it's becoming, rather, there has to, there are these two aspects that um, are part of this process of becoming, which is the internalization of uh, decoded social forces into the physical system, which seemed to be their point about the Simone Den, um, uh quote that we talked about, or rather that Simone Den, um reference. And then on the other hand, there seems to be the spiritualization that is, um, is this overcoding, right, in reference to the primitive system, and thereby like a metaphysical system is developed therefrom. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there because like you've got the physical and the metaphysical um, conjoined here in the becoming of the state, right? You've got at the phys- you've got a physical system developed through the internalization of these increasingly decoded social forces, right? So you've got this physical system that's internalized within the state. This seems to be like the concrete level. But when they talk about like the spiritualization of the metaphysical system, like this leads me back to their comments about exegesis, where they're they're talking about how like the introduction of writing with the despotic machine comes into this level of well, what does it mean? Right, with this emphatic question of like um, you know, critical textual analysis at like a spiritual level, where like the states are are higher because you're dealing with the spiritual um uh well, I don't want to use the word states again, but this this spiritual um, matter. Yeah, I just wish they'd give more hints about what they were talking about with respect to the Roman Empire transformation. In I mean, it, like, for instance, what strange machines those were that cropped up on columns and in tree trunks. Um. Where where is then this paragraph? I'm trying to find. So it's it's in the last paragraph, about halfway through, and the the comment there, I'm assuming, is also a reference to uh, the part I was reading at the bottom there, where they're talking about the ascetics and the perverts, and specifically the machines that they're talking about that cropped up in columns and in tree trunks. They're talking about carvings, uh, uh, statues, uh, the symbolism that existed inside of those, and the difference between them, and those that existed right prior to the sort of formation of the Holy Roman Empire as it, you know, spread everywhere it did. That's that's my understanding, is they're kind of like laughing about how what strange machines those were, uh, because they kind of, uh, Christianity, when it took possession of the empire, did see a lot of people split off and start spreading around to new places, and there were a lot of offshoots uh, that were very much more, I would say, the term naturalistic, but probably that's the wrong term, uh, that went to the the woods and carved in trees and did that thing uh well what i wonder is if they're talking about the desert fathers you know in egypt there were these people the desert fathers who were basically uh monk but you know there weren't any monks at that time but they were christian fathers 
who went into the desert. And they did some pretty strange things. Like one of the things, one of the asceticisms was to to climb up a pole and sit on top of the pole. And they, they another one I think was eating grass. So, so you know, there's kind of this uh, litany of very weird things that uh, early Christians did as ascetic practices, and maybe they're referring to that. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with both of you because, like, again, it, it's this going without, right, into the desert where we find the machine of the strange that is this, like, that works with the despotic machine, right? It's like at that level, if you want to, like, if I could impose just a little bit of architecture, if we think about the composite column uh, of Roman architecture, right, that is a, that is taking the Ionic, Doric, and Corinthian um, columns and putting them together to create a new column. But it's the same thing, right? In the same way, like, if we think about Christian architecture in relation to Roman architecture, it's kind of like the same idea of like the this new regime, this new despotic machine is going to overtake and overcode um, what precedes. In the same way that like a Roman machine, the Roman Empire would have overcoded the Greek Empire in a sense. One thing I think is interesting too here is their use of that quote from Nietzsche, because the the use of the word cruelty, like this is an interesting part of the despotic machine to me, is that cruelty gives way to terror, which is interesting, right? Because you go from like the theater of cruelty where the actions are there, and, you know, in marking the bodies and that, to to terror, right? Which I think kind of fits with their point of like maybe there is this concrete level, but again, it's like this mental fear of things like law, of like, of law, of, um, of the text, of the written word. Hmm. All right. Um, I don't have very much else. My brain's kind of uh, processing a lot of this. choose another passage then what do you guys make of this paradox this is 221 in my copy again and again we come upon the monstrous paradox the state is desire that passes from the head of the despot to the hearts of his subjects and from the intellectual law to the entire physical system that disengages or liberates itself from the law you said 2221 yeah, 221 is the second sentence of this final paragraph immediately after. But isn't this tendency to con isn't this tendency to concretization and the social or technical machine precisely the movement of desire? So like one question we can start to wonder about is like what does it mean that the state is desire here? Or uh, Conversely, what does the state do as desire? What does desire do as it be, in this process of becoming state? Well, you know, it says that uh, the desire, uh, such is the operation that consists in always stamping the mark of the primordial erstat on the state of things, rendering it imminent to the new system insofar as possible, making it interior to this system. So, you know, this Erstat is, is kind of like an archetype. Um, 
in its latency. So it's, it's, it's almost like there's this latent organization of the state, and it just keeps waking up and kind of stamping itself on the situation. And it, it, they're saying that's, that's, that's a, a manifestation of desire. Yeah, and I think that's fair, and that's kind of interesting, right? That the state is actually, we, we talk about the state as this repressive aspect of like um, social and psychic repression, but you know, this is kind of interesting thing too. Is once again the state is desired. See, uh, uh, the context we ought to read this in is that you know the the uh, before ten thousand years BC. Uh, the uh, the the atmosphere of the Earth was very irregular, and and because of this this conveyor belt current that goes around the world, that snapped into place about 10,000 BC, and then it was soon after that that agriculture was invented, and um, and so then you had the surpluses from the agriculture. And the surpluses could be used to support a priesthood and support all kinds of activities that were impossible before. And we've been living in that world ever since. And if that conveyor belt current that goes through the oceans ever stops, then good chance there's going to be another ice age. So, so it, it's kind of interesting that, you know, they're saying that that. When you had that uh, excess, that excess from the agriculture, then human beings formed this state spontaneously that was emergent in Ur, and that and that every time they found a state afterwards, they they um, uh, they they kind of institute the same thing. And 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 what's interesting about that is that if you go to the exhibitions about the things they found at Ur. We recognize all the things. They're instruments, they're games, they're cosmetics, they're all of the things of civilization. Uh, you know, not the high technology, but all of the kind of aesthetic things about technology, uh, about civilization, they, 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 they more or less invented overnight. And, and we still recognize those things today. I'm reading through, uh, Alyosha linked a wonderful piece on Deleuze, uh, specifically talking about actually a lot of this. <clears throat> but I do want to read uh, the quote he's got from the previous section, because I think it applies greatly here. Desire is by no means an interplay between a son, a mother, and a father. Desire institutes a libidinal investment of a state machine that overcodes the territorial machine and with an additional turn of the screw represses the desiring machines. It's a great line, and I think um, is Alyosha's interpretation. So it's a panopticon. It, it's the the assumption that uh, the state apparatus is a machine that's all around us. It's always coding our desire and repressing desiring machines just through its sheer existence. And that's the urstat. Is is that the the over time that just has taken place, and that's what they refer to when it. It switched from being this uh, sort of direct machine that you could look at and sort of a state which is more conceptual and now exists behind the scenes, behind the, the 
things uh, because the state apparatus internalizes itself. Yes, it's uh, just the idea that the state internalizes itself. Yes, 100%. It's interesting. It's, it's a lot for us to read. I'm going to go ahead and start slowly uh, closing out uh, this uh, reading. Uh, and I think um, we've got a few links in the chat. Uh, please join us tomorrow for our review of this uh, because we're about to dive into the next section, which is the civilized capitalist machine. And I'm starting to think that their concepts of civilized and uncivilized is more sarcastic than anything. But um, yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for joining and we look forward to uh, seeing you next time.